How's it going, guys? Kyle Brotherson here. This is the Dirt Bike Channel podcast, and I've got a very, very special guest today. I'm super excited. In studio, in-house, because it's the studio inside my house. Yes. <laughs> I have Jay Clark here with me. Jay, say, say hello to the world. Hello. This is great to be here. It is great. It's great to have Jay here. Jay and I have just been reminiscing on the past and talking about his family life and my family life a little bit. And we are here in my little basement office here recording this podcast episode. So I'm super excited. Thanks, Jay, for coming uh, all the way from California because this is the only reason you came, right? Exactly. (laughs) For those of you who don't know uh, Jay Clark, um, I don't know what rock you've been living under. No, just kidding. Uh, Jay Clark is the man. He lives in, you're in Sun City, California right now, aren't you, Jay? Yeah, which is Menifee's, the actual name now they like to call it, but I still like to call it Sun City. Sun City. That's, uh, it's, it's fun because the weather is always sunny in Southern California, right? It, it so, is a lot. So Sun City. So I'm going to just introduce Jay here a little bit for some of, some of you that aren't as well versed in uh, what Jay's been doing. So Jay's been in the, in the dirt bike industry for a lot longer than I have, many, many, many uh, more years than I have. He started riding bikes in 1980. We're going to get into a lot of this, but Jay has, um, he's kind of the owner and the curator of Jay Clark Enterprises, which is... Uh, this really cool um, company that he's built up where he works with a core group of companies to help get them media coverage and exposure uh, through a number of different channels, magazines and online and print and and uh, other types of advertising. Um, a good example of one of the ways that he does this is he builds project bikes. You, you build a lot of project bikes, which we're going to get into. Um, and you're doing that every month. And then you'll, you know, you'll highlight, okay, look, on this bike, we put on this part from you know, comedic gaskets. We, we did a, a cylinder here. Uh, we did a piston from vertex. And, and so we'll talk about that a lot. Uh, so he's built, you know, dirt bikes. If you have been reading any magazine, I would say over the last 15, 20 years, any dirt bike related magazine, you have seen his handiwork. Is that right, Jay? That's, that's about right. That's about, that's about right. You've seen the bikes that he has built these project bikes over a number of years. He also runs uh, dirt bike channel or dirt bike TV, uh, which is a channel on YouTube. You need to go check check it out. He's got a lot of tips, uh, does a lot of testing. Um, you can find him at jclarkent.com, so jclarkent.com online. He's got his website there. And the thing that I feel about Jay, and I think I said this three years ago when I, when I uh, did a little tire change video with Jay, is that he has forgotten more about dirt bikes than I have ever known. And so it's, it's a pleasure to have him have him in here uh, to chat about dirt bikes. So I just wanted to thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Uh, this is kind of fun and uh, I'm looking forward to doing it. Yeah. So, um, I, and I've, I've done this with a lot of the different guys and people that we've had on the podcast. So why don't you kind of briefly tell us what your first dirt bike was and how old you were and maybe some of those early memories from your, from your childhood there. So my uncles both raced and, uh, one of them, was pretty good in the 70s as a motocross, uh, Vince Clark. And he was like uh, number 44 in the nation. And it was kind of a big deal back then. And I, he, he actually just moved up here, not far from where you live. And so he he's old now and had both knees replaced. And he's got a dual sport. Okay. So that's what old guys do is, uh, is dual sport. So is, that, kinda, is that a stereotype? Yes. Old guys go... I saw you did a video on that on your YouTube channel. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but... Yeah, that's starting to take over, and I, and that's a whole other thing we could talk about. But the, as far as getting into riding, um, the first little bike was like a like a four-stroke 125. Uh, I don't even know what it was, like a Honda, but it was that was the first bike I ever rode, and I could, couldn't touch the ground on it or anything, and from then on, I was hooked. How old were you then? So I was probably like 11 
you know, 10 or 11. Okay. So a little, little Honda, you couldn't touch yeah. the ground, couldn't 10 or 11. So, so then I got a 77 RM80 and uh, from then I was, you know, just hooked and just loved it. And then from then on until I was basically from then until I was an adult, I just battled uh, keeping anything running because we didn't have a whole <laughs> lot of money. So it was like, so if it would just, you'd ride it as much as you could until it broke, then it would sit until I could afford parts and get it fixed. I think, I think a lot of people can relate to that. So is that kind of where you then started to develop the talent of, of working on things and wrenching on things and fixing them? Yeah, back then, I, I just did more damage than good. I, okay. me- I remember breaking a main jet off in a carburetor like, <laughs> as, a, as like a 12 or 13-year-old. Just trying to get it too tight? But yeah, you know, not even close. So didn't know what I was doing. So I, yeah, I did more damage than good because I couldn't afford to take it to anyone. So I would just do the work myself and then a lot of times just cost more damaged and good yeah it's funny you mentioned that because like the jets are brass and so you're dealing <laughs> you're dealing with a you know a steel or metal screwdriver and then it's a brass <laughs> screw in there and i have stripped out pilot jets before like trying to take them out they're so tight i don't know if mccuny and Keen. i don't know why they're putting them in with, with like impact guns but i will get my screwdriver up in there and i can't turn the thing out so yeah so i learned the hard way and a lot of that stuff so it was it was a constant battle and so when i around um later in the 80s and we moved out to Missouri and it was there was good land there so we could ride so that was nice uh but again uh single mom income and so didn't have a lot of opportunity to to be able to ride uh like I wanted to I when I once I got to high school and I was working I could go uh, I went to a few races so I I raced maybe I don't know 10 or 12 times through all my you know teen years and Thought it was pretty cool. Was never very good at it, uh, but I kind of thought I was and dreamed I could be. But I kind of stuck to to football because football, you know, you didn't have to repair anything uh, as far as being able to do it. You know, it was basically free to to play football. Yeah, no, I I can relate to that a lot. Like I get questions from kids. In fact, I had a question on email today from a kid, and he's like, "Hey, look, I I love the fact that you give dirt bikes away because I can't afford one." Oh. Um, and I, I get those multiple times a week and, and kids will say, you know, what can I do to afford a dirt bike? And, and honestly, it's really tough because if you don't have your parents to help you as a kid, it's almost impossible to make as much money as you need to make to buy a dirt bike. And, and I, as discouraging as that sounds, it, it's true to some extent, I couldn't really afford my own dirt bike until I was 29 or 30. You know what I mean? And that didn't mean I didn't have some four wheelers and stuff when I was growing up, but you know, money was tight with my family and we didn't have nice new thing. We never had any of the newer toys. You know what I mean? And you bring up a good point. I get hit up about this a lot. And so when guys get into me, I kind of go, I kind of try to steer them towards stick and ball sports if they can't afford it. I mean, because if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. So I don't think you should be, especially tracing the racing dream. A lot of them want to chase the racing dream. And I go, man, don't be like second mortgaging your house and all this stuff just so you can go race or ride. Um, I, I think you're better off doing that stuff and then wait until you can afford to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I totally wholeheartedly agree with that. So I want to kind of talk about the transition between real, cause I, it sounds like you were a lot like a lot of kids in, uh, when they're growing up in dirt bikes. See, I didn't grow up with dirt bikes, so I never had this in, you know, this goal that I was going to be a, a dirt bike racer. I thought I was going to be a, a jet fighter pilot, you know, because <laughs> I grew up watching Top Gun and then I figured I was going to be Maverick or whatever. But, but so you, you kind of grew up with dirt bikes as part of your life. And so you had that goal, like, or this dream, maybe is the better way to put it, that I'm going to make money racing or riding dirt bikes. And then like, 
most of the rest of the world, that kind of didn't pan out for maybe a number of reasons. But I want to talk about the transition between, okay, you're saying I'm not going to make it in riding dirt bikes as a racer. So, but then you found a way to kind of make a living in the industry in a totally different way. Can you talk to me about that transition, how that came to be? Because you've been, you know, making a living in dirt bikes for a long time and it isn't about the racing aspect aspect of it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. So that's, it's a really good question. And so when it, I never really, I guess, thought I could. And even today I kind of um, have to pinch myself or go, kind of go, Hey, I still do this. This is cool. So I back, you know, once I got out of high school, I was, I was a machinist and I worked uh, uh, quite a few machinist jobs. And when I moved out back out to California, there was the aerospace was still alive and well for just a little bit. And I was able to get a lot of machinist uh, jobs, and they were pretty good. So it actually afforded me to be able to get back into dirt bikes. I, I went a while without having any, and I was able to buy my own dirt bike through just being a machinist. Got, got an RM250. Um, How back, old were you? So back then, I was like 21. So you, you were starting to make some decent money. Yeah, so, so you could get on your own feet, and I, then I could afford a... Uh, at least a, a bike payment. I don't recommend that, but yeah, that's what I did. You know what though? A lot of us started that way. Yeah, and, and there are guys that still have to do, have to make that payment, yeah. you know? Because in hindsight, like nowadays, it's like, man, I wish you could just, you're like, I think you're better off buying a, a bike you can afford to buy, even if you have to fix it up and not have those payments, I guess, but. That's the whole prudent living. So, so you, so now you're a machinist, you've got, you've got a dirt bike and how does that, how do you transition to, into like, wait, I can make money in this industry. Cause I think there are hundreds of thousands of guys out there thinking that they could do the same. How did it look? How'd that work for you? Well, it, it kind of started the day after uh, I got home from my honeymoon with my wife, uh, I got laid off. And so that was pretty awesome. I come back to work and it was like, uh, I was just newly married. And I was like, oh, Nightmare. This, this is, yeah, this is kind of gnarly. And then for the first time, I kind of struggled finding work. Um, it took me a while because everything was kind of dying off. So I kind of struggled finding work. And so what I did was uh, just started brainstorming about all these different things. I was trying anything to find good work. And I found some part-time stuff and everything. And then um, I hit up Wisco. I knew the company from... The Pistons, right? Yeah, Wisco Pistons. And so... And they're based in Ohio, but they had a warehouse in California. And so I knew the guy there, and I talked to him, and then he gave me a good word to the people in Ohio. And I hounded on him for like six months. Like I would call him and go, hey, you guys don't have anybody out west here representing you guys. You guys need somebody that's out here that can help you with the race teams and do different things. And of course, it wasn't really even thinking about project bikes or things like that, really. It was just thinking of a way to help promote their brand out west. And since they're in Ohio... You're kind of you're out of sight, out of mind, and mm -hmm. this is before internet, and you know, so it was like, you know, this is in the uh, like ninety two, ninety three range, and so it was before there was a, if you were in Ohio, you were forgotten about. You know? Yeah, and so I, so when I, you know, finally kind of got through to them, um, I was they flew me back there for an interview after I met one of the owners out in California. He was out in California, met him, and he goes, "Hey, you should come out and meet our team in, in Ohio." Met them, and then I worked for them for 11 years, and they were great. And the the owners, I'm still good friends with the Andersons and uh, Kips and the uh, Bob Gorman. He's the owner of Kometic. Uh, there, there are some of the key, re the great people, just amazing people. But they did sell the company, and once they sold the company, then I kind of saw that uh, hey, I need to look at doing other things as well. And so then, uh, you know, I was able to leave on my own after the, after they, a couple years after they sold, I was able to kind of leave on my own. 
And that's what really opened things up a little bit more. But I would I'd still be with Wiseco today if they had never sold because they were such a great company and a great uh, family and people that run it and everybody that worked there was just amazing. That's cool. So, so your your background as a machinist that kind of opened the door to that. Did were you making pistons? What, what well, no, you? yeah. So what happened? What they did like that I was technical, but obviously everything was made in Ohio. But I could at least talk about the product with some knowledge. So when I would go back there, I could meet with the guys that do the designing, and I could meet with the guy on the dyno and that's that's doing everything. And so and then when I would go meet with the race teams, and back then we'd be sponsoring Yamaha and Kawasaki, and and they would want special pistons made. And, uh, and I'm the one that helped kind of facilitate that. So I would go okay. visit the teams and, and, you know, and Emig was racing there and Kudrowski and these, these kind of guys. And so it was kind of fun. Jeff Emig, is that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And so we could get, and so, and then, and then I started traveling to all the nationals and supercrosses for them. And I'd go and make sure we, you know, we're sponsoring these races, getting banners up, those kind of things. And so that's really what, uh, helped, helped Weiss go a lot. And they, they really liked all the efforts that I did. They liked everything that I was able to do and bring to the table. So they liked that. And, uh, and like I said, it was a really good, good company. Yeah, it was, it was great. And it, uh, it was, it was a good, good fit for me. And, it, and then it rolled right into the company that I left there for, I still work with. And that's, and they kind of had a relationship and that's, uh, Kurt Leverton owned Hot Rods and Pivotworks Hot Cams and Weisco was kind of the, the, uh, what do you call it? The importer or the, the dist- main distributor for that. And that, that went away and he took it back. And when that happened, I went with him and he's out of Iowa and, uh, and then he started all these other companies with, uh, you know, cylinder works and then he ended up buying vertex pistons and, um, and then it became part of the all balls racing group. And you have all these companies under there that they all own. And it's, so I was able to do all that, uh, with them and that's really opened up to the next level. And then kind of during that whole time, about uh, 15 years ago, I started doing more stuff with Dunlop. And then, so the Dunlop thing kind of works nicely with everything else that I do. And so with Dunlop, then it allowed me to, I'm with all the magazines during the week. Um, go to I go to the track a couple of times a week, um, or to their to their house, or they'll meet up with me. And we'll uh, you know fit tires onto some of the newer bikes. Like right now, we're just doing all the shootouts and all the 2020 motocross bikes. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we make sure that we try to get all the Dunlops onto all those bikes so that they're all. Uh, look pretty for all the photos. And Don't videos. they come with Dunlops though? Most of the bikes do. Most of them. But we put them all on the same tires. So like, there oh, might yeah. be a shootout and there might be one or two bikes that come with uh, brand X, let's say, or something. So, okay. so then we'll put them all on. And then, uh, and then when they're on Dunlops, some of them could be on uh, two different uh, tires, uh, you know, a, th- a 3S or a 33, for instance. And so this way we'll put them all on the same tire for the shootout. And they kind of like that. So when they're out there testing, all the bikes are on the same tire. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously tires are one thing that if you're doing a shootout, uh, it's the one thing that most people are going to be able to change the soonest on a bike um, and put to what they like. Yeah. And it's, it's important. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road uh, and we can talk about tires too. I'd love to talk about that, but I, I forgot to kind of mention you were, you were talking there about some of the companies that you work with most closely now. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, some of those core companies are Pivot Works, Hot Rods, Hot Cams, Cylinder Works, Dunlop, Vertex Pistons, Cometic Gaskets, FMF, Works Connection, Unifilter, Wrench Rabbit, Fuel Star, All Balls Racing, Super Sprocks. Did I miss anybody? No, that's that's about it. It's that's, pretty it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, no, that it's just it is really really cool. I mean, and, and I know there's some other companies in there that you that you have relationships as well with. Uh, some of the plastic parts companies and different things that I've worked with you in the past. So I, I just, it's so fascinating to me to, to hear you talk about how, how that comes, how that came to be. So, um, 
it's kind of a perfect segue in, into this this question. So you spend a lot of time making project bikes. You make how many like 15, 20 project bikes and some even some ATVs, right? Right, right. So we do so a few per ATVs. Year. Yeah, a few per year. ATVs, UTVs a year. Try to do two or three of those a year. I wish I could do more. It's just logistically they're very difficult because they're twice or three times the size of a dirt yeah. bike. And it's just way more work. So it's a lot more work. And I have a couple buddies who I'll try to work with. Like if I have a, I have a couple, uh, I call them, you know, UTV buddies that I can help them do the build and facilitate it. And they can do a lot of the heavy lifting, so to speak. Yeah. And I can just help put it all together. Um, now on those things, a lot of times you can make a lot bigger differences, uh, because, uh, stock, it's kind of like when you get a detuned, uh, dual sport bike or something on those UTVs, you can make big gains by doing a lot of different things where on the dirt bikes, uh, on say a, a modern, you know, four stroke motocross bike, you're not going to do a whole lot because they're, they're so, so good. They're so good right from the factory. They're, yeah. Yeah. You can go race them. Uh, so, so, um, so we do a, a few of those and then I'll probably do about anywhere from 15 to 20 dirt bikes a year. And then I help on quite a few others with, with guys. So tell us a little bit of, so maybe describe the typical work week for you, because it, I think there's a lot of people out there just thinking, man, that just sounds like a, a vacation and it, it would be so easy and so fun from my perspective, because people will say the same thing to me. They're like, oh, it, that must not be, it must be like you're not even working. And I, it, I know from my perspective, there's still work and there's some monotony that goes into this. So kind of just take us through the average work week for you uh, throughout the year? Like what does Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday look like? How do you, how do you, how's your time spent when you're making these, uh, project bikes? Uh, that's great. So I think, uh, for me, I always joke around it. It beats a real job, right? That's, that's what I always say. Right. And, and so, but, but also the, the downside is to it is there are times I wish I had an eight to five job. And when I came home, my work didn't, you know, call me at 10 o'clock at night. It comes with you. It comes with you. You never turn off, right? No, no, no. So that that is one thing. But the, I can't, uh, I'm not going to diminish the fact that uh, being able to work your own schedule is pretty amazing. Uh, we can, you know, like the fact I'm up here with you today on a Monday is kind of nice, but I have a tough week when I get back. I'm, I'm going straight, you know, to, Tuesday morning, I'm going to be at KTM doing all their, you've seen the 50 Supercross Challenge uh, races. They're racing at Monster Cup and they have uh, 16 or 17 of these bikes and I change all the 50 tires, which is actually the the worst uh, tires to change. They are hard. <laughs> they are hard. So you've got to set up all those all those bikes for the for the Monster Energy Cup in Las Vegas. Yes. So w w I go over to KTM and they help me. And those guys, and they they all hate it too. Oh, is that because they all want to be on Dunlop tires, but the KTM the 50s come with Maxxis tires? Well, we 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 just like to say something else. Yeah, they come with something else. Oh, something so, else. Something, so, else. something else. So we put them on Dunlops, <laughs> okay. and so we, we have them. <laughs> We have them all. I, oh, I, I can edit that out later. <laughs> so it's okay. So we have them all on uh, Dunlop tires, and we get we're going to get that switched. And so that's going to take me uh, most of Tuesday. We'll be over there. Uh, how many that. how many bikes are there doing that? I think they they have like fifteen or sixteen that race, and then they do two or three extra bikes. So it's like uh, twenty. Uh, so it's twenty bikes. Yeah, front and rears. Yeah, and those are a nightmare. Those little bikes. And the, so the tires, the rears, I kind of got a little system the last time and Spencer helped me because the fronts are a zero problem. I can Sp Spencer's your son, right? Yeah. And so he helped me and actually have, I come up with a new system, but they're, they're really difficult. It's hard to explain, but when you're uh, there, it's, it's really tough. It kind of sucks. And I made a video showing how to do it correctly, but it's tough to get it right every time. Which is so funny because the, you're, you are the most experienced dirt bike tire changer I know. And to hear you say that it's frustrating makes me feel better because a couple times I've been out in the shop <laughs> And my boys are there, and I'm trying to put tires on their bike, and I'm I'm 
struggling. Well, before they had rim when they they have rim locks now. When they didn't have rim locks, it was a little easier. So, uh, but you have to have a rim lock, and those things make they make good power now, and they hook up, so it's, it's going to turn. So you need a rim lock. That's funny. So tomorrow, that's what you're up to tomorrow is, is doing a bunch tomorrow, of and a when, bunch of 50s. Wednesday, I'm going to go to Kuya. That's my favorite track to ride. That's kind of my uh, guilty pleasure or whatever. And I'll try to meet up with some guys out there. But uh, Wednesday, the plan is to go to Kuya. And that's where I'll do uh, try to get something tested. I always like to test something that during the week, whether it's a, a different suspension. I picked up a new 350 uh, that I have on loan from KTM, 350 SXF. And so I'm going to be riding that on Wednesday. And uh, just love the bike so far. Uh, only got a ride at once and just love it. And it's, I think 350s are, we can talk about that a little bit more, but uh, on the track, I really like 250s and 350s and this new 350 is pretty cool. That's cool. That's cool. So then what, what does Thursday look like? So Thursday we're, oh, I'm doing tires for a motocross action um, for their shootout. So I'll be going up and that's just like uh, yeah, 40 minutes away and I'll be mounting tires on all their, so there's six bikes for their, so this is at the track then? Oh, we're going to meet up at their shop. Okay. Yeah, one of the guys' shops and get it all ready, and they're going to shoot the on Friday up at Glen Helen. So I'll be going out there on Friday as well probably. To kind of support or, yeah. or help help out with things? Yeah. So when you're there at the track for one of these you know, magazines or other uh, organizations supporting them, what is that like? You're at the track for eight hours, you know, what do you, what would you maybe have to do? You might have to do an oil change or help out with suspension or no no most because most of the time they they'll a lot of the OEMs will come out. The OEMs have media guys and they'll come out. So we're usually pretty good friends with all the other uh, media guys from the OEMs uh, from you know and so they'll come out and support the event and have everything and show. Usually, honestly, a lot of times we get a ride if if they're riding the track. Okay, so that's that's good. You know, a nice benefit. And then uh, and then change tires as needed during the day. Um, and then just kind of support the event, make sure all our stickers are on and everything looks good. And so that's kind of a, it, it's a lot of times that day is actually easier than the, the other days where you're actually doing more work. Yeah. So you say, you say you get to ride, um, you get to ride like some of the bikes that do, do these, do these magazines when they're ever, when they're doing these shootouts, do they ever come to you and just say, Hey, what did you feel on this? And, and giving extra input or do they just kind of stick to their test riders? Well, they usually stick to their test riders. I've a lot of times they they'll ask me to do, it, but I try not to because of my position I'm in. I try and I like to be friends with all the OEMs, okay, because it helps me. So I try not to come up with uh, huge uh, winners or losers in this because it's tough. Because I do see see these guys uh, weekly, and so I I want to be careful about that. And I'm sure you've already felt some of that, and that's one of the things that's made you successful is that you're you're able to speak your mind a little bit more than than maybe I can at times. Well, that's true. It, so, it sounds like you'd be really good for politics. You're going to run for mayor of <laughs> Sun, mayor, Sun City? Yeah, mayor of Sun City, I should be. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. No, I, but I, I do hear what you're saying. It's it's good to it's good to network and to create um, those relationships. It's probably something that I haven't done a lot of. Because my, my experience has been totally different from yours. I have just this guy out here in Utah that's doing his own thing. Well, um, and your your own thing's working. I think that there's that's what's neat about this industry right now with the shift. Um, you know, things have changed, I and mean, I think a lot of people, you know, even just a couple years ago, maybe not might not have uh, totally respected like YouTube or what what uh, what certain things bring to the table, but they sure do now. I mean, because they they see their numbers like these other media outlets. Uh, they they release videos and they can see their numbers of what people how many people watch it and are comment and are engaged on it, and so. When they see your stuff um, and the other successful guys, because there's there's a good group of guys that are pretty successful 
uh, at least, uh, I say successful, but successful at least in viewership and that kind of thing, and have some real high, there's some really high quality content out there that I, th- that, uh, I think a lot of people really enjoy. Yeah, I remember, um, I won't name any names, but I was up at a, uh, a, a climb event up in uh, Idaho, I guess it was three years ago, and there were a couple of industry guys up there, um, I won't name their names, but I know you know who they are, <laughs> and they, uh, I, I got invited to come to this little media day ride thing. And here I was with guys who'd been writing articles in the magazines for many, many years. And they looked at me and I was just like this. I'm like, they, they didn't say it. They were nice, but it was what they weren't saying. They're like, this guy's a gimmick. Like, why is he here? Yeah. And, and I just smiled at that and I'm still here and I'm, I'm still producing videos and I, I still, I'm still producing content. And in some ways I'm influencing and it's because of this new, you know, the new wave of the internet, you know, there's a lot less happening in print. There's more happening online and happening on podcasts and things like that. And so industry has changed. And and if you can't, if you can't adapt, you're going to become a little bit more irrelevant, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. And I, and I think it's funny that you had mentioned that because there are guys that maybe have their head in the sand a little bit in, in, uh, in the older school media that, that kind of would write somebody like you off, for instance. And so, um, and that's one of the reasons I, so what's funny is the way the reason that the only the reason I met you was like I don't know however long ago it was three and a half years ago whatever it was when I I was I was on YouTube and I'm like this thing's I didn't spend a ton of time on YouTube but I was on it and I go man this is kind of cool and I started thinking about it and I go I should make something for myself and I started and I came up with this dirt bike TV idea I'm like I could do something just and what I was thinking is it was, honestly I was because I, I don't I have zero desire to shoot video I have zero desire to edit video. So that it takes a special breed of person, <laughs> and and I have a couple of buddies that do. And Spencer got a little bit uh, um, familiar with it, and and I don't say he enjoyed it, but he he did it enough to uh, uh, to appease me, and you know that kind of thing. And I paid him a little bit, and it gave me a way to obviously like keep him off the streets, so to speak. But it gave him some purpose to do. So I thought that was good. I'm like, I got this teenage son, and he can edit video. That's better than him playing video games or something. Yeah, I'd I'd rather him do that, and and I could pay him a little bit to do it, and so. We were searching on, and then I came up with this dirt bike TV idea, and then I looked around and I found out there was this dirt bike channel already, and I'm like, "Well, that's interesting." <laughs> so, and then I watched a few videos. I'm like, "Okay, this guy's got it figured out pretty good." So that's when I wrote you and said, "You know, just I think I started opening some dialogue there, and then we met up uh, shortly after, and um, and so that's that's kind of how I came about, you know, this. I'm like, I I think there's a future here. Now I don't get to spend as much time." on like save my videos i try and it's not my focus you know my focus is working for those companies um and so i've been around other guys who are able to spend a lot more time and do higher quality content and and more content and i and maybe uh, i think that's what reaches out to a lot of the guys that follow you and uh what one of the things i like about what your channel does is people are really engaged now some of the comments are pretty silly and i know you probably you know there's a lot of me you have to blow off but there's just a ton of support so, um, when, as soon as your video goes up, I mean, there's, I don't know how many, but thousands of comments just pretty quickly of people with their own opinions about this or that. And then a lot of support, you know, you get a lot of goofy comments, but yeah, there's, and, and there's some that you just have to block. Like after a while you just start, you see, okay, this is a person who just is spreading hate. Yeah. And so, and so you might, you might block somebody like that. You know, I, I'm okay with criticism, but if you're just going to be, if you're just going to be nasty and you're just doing it to sound mean, then yeah. you get you get blocked. And so over the years, I've had to block a lot of people 
because I just got tired of reading it. You know what I mean? I, I don't and, have enough comments to worry. My, mine are all positive because they're all, it's just a small groups. But yeah. I see on yours, all, but it's, it is nice how much positive stuff there is though. I mean, I think sometimes we concentrate just on the negative ones, but there's so much, it's like 80, 90% positive people just are like, they, they just love seeing, or you talk about this. And I, so that's what I think is cool about a lot of the way these videos are going. And uh, I see it with some of the other guys too. And I work with, uh, I go riding with uh, Rado and uh dirt uh, dirt and iron and he's got and he lives out by this track i ride a lot so we get to ride a lot and he's really passionate about uh dirt bikes and and somewhat new to it like you were you know he's yeah he does a good job though. he start he started as an adult like you did you know he didn't ride until you know five or six years ago or something so as a 30 plus year old he got into it and so it's kind of neat for me to see guys that get into it later and um what's it, what's cool especially about trail riding is is for if you get into it, say at 30, 35, whatever, if you stick with it, you can get, you know, pretty decent at it. Oh yeah. And and there's a ton of people that are doing that. I get that I get that email almost daily now where it's, you know, the 30 something or the 40 something and even the 50 and 60 something guys that are like, I'm just getting into dirt bikes. And so that's that's a podcast episode for another day. In fact, <laughs> I think I'm gonna do a YouTube video on that as well because it, it gets overlooked. We think so often you think that dirt bikes, you have to start when you're a kid. And yes, if you were going to be Eli Tomac or whatever, you have to start, you know, at three or four. It, um, no, that's th- a really good th- point. There's a couple people that don't. I mean, maybe, maybe like there's some Christian Craigs or some guys out there that maybe started when they were in their teens. But if you were going to be competitive in racing at the highest level, you have to start as a kid. You, yeah. But coming in and just enjoying the sport, you know, like I've done, I didn't have my own dirt bike until I was... 29 or 30 and and now i'm 38 it's taken over my life literally and and it's added a ton of benefit to to me and my you know my well-being i guess i would say and so it's a fun thing that that people can come in at any age and and have fulfillment from it well and and the nice thing about coming in in your 30s or 40s is uh, you can afford to do it kind of right like i said that's that's that is nice and there's a group of guys that you're able to go ride with and that kind of stuff that's going to be fun Right. You can do it a little, a little bit more safely because you can afford all the safety gear because people will email me and say, Hey, I have uh, $2,000 and I want to get into dirt bikes. What dirt bike should I be getting? <laughs> and my, and my, fir- and my response back to them, as I say, let's, uh, let's just pump the brakes for just a second here because I would feel remiss if we didn't spend at least 500 of that, of those dollars or maybe 700 of those dollars on safety gear. Right. And and so I'm going, you have $2,000 and you think you can go out and get a bike. And yes, you can. You can find a bike for $2,000. You're going to have to probably do a lot of maintenance and, and some fixing. But really, you only have about $1,200 for a bike because you need this other gear. And I'm not going to allow you to scrimp on the safety gear. Right. I want you to have really good boots. I want you to have a really good helmet. You've got to have gloves. You've got to have goggles. You've got to have you know, the correct riding pants. Jersey, I mean, yeah, you could wear your hoodie or whatever, but I want you to have some safety gear and I want you, I want you to spend two, $300 on your boots. I just, and I want you to spend $200 or more on your helmet because there are some things that it's just not worth it. I mean, you know, so it's funny that you say, you know, as you get into this at an older age, it's, it's good because you've got some of the financial means some of the time to do it right instead of, instead of cutting corners. Exactly, and so yeah. I, I think it's it's great what's what's uh, what's happening, and that 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 kind of shift is nice. So you spend a lot of time riding dirt bikes, um, more more than I would say the average person. 
uh, especially because a lot you're you're going to tracks a lot. You're doing a lot of trail riding. So can you kind of give us the split right now of your track time versus trail time? Because if I'm not mistaken, you know you you used to spend a lot more time on tracks, and now you're spending you know a, a more significant portion of your time riding trails. So what's the what's the split now between percentage between track and trail? Uh, it, it's hard to say, but it, living in California, part of the problem is um, it's hot and dry for, for most of the year. So let's say seven, eight months, right, where it's not that great. So when you're in California in you know June, July, August, September, um, a lot of those times a year, it's it's nice to go to a prepped motocross track that's yeah. that's all watered and nice. And like the Aquia track or Glen Helen, I can go to these tracks, get a ride in before noon, get all done get everything washed and put away before, you know, it's 105, you know, if you get out there early in the morning, get a ride in, it's kind of nice. So, so that's what, that's one of the reasons I still do a lot of moto is just that it's convenient and easy and trail riding in the summertime or, you know, when it's hot and dry out in California, it's not very fun. It's more of a commitment to do the trail riding than just hit a moto track, right? Yeah. And it's just, and, and a lot of the trails are, um, uh, you're, you know, in that time of year, um, it being so dry, uh, and a lot of it's uh, they call them red sticker, and so green sticker, red sticker. Yeah, stuff. so you're not allowed to be out in certain areas at, during the summer and so forth. So we do go up to a place called Kendi Meadows. That's a, like a four hour drive, and that's kind of up in that. And but it's it would be similar, I'd say, to like AF, but not as good. Um, American Fork is what you're talking about. Yeah, here in Utah, place, a place that you know, and it's just pretty overridden for the last 40, 50 years, and and uh, the trails are pretty hammered. Uh, real rocky in sections and it's just not as flowy and fun as some other places and some of that stuff like i saw i've seen you riding in idaho recently so uh, so we tend to do more ride trips um with trail riding you know like uh, hey we're going to go for three days four days and take a trip to utah colorado those are our you know kind of favorite places and then in california the trail riding that we do do uh, that is really good is say from you know november december once we start getting some rain until uh april may there's some good trail riding up in the high desert that you know below big bear so you get into some little bit of pines um open stuff and there's some great trail riding in there and some areas we have and some of those some of the and even close to my house within 10 minutes of my house we can go some really cool places we can go uh, trail riding that, that it's really fun in the winter what are your favorite tracks down there where you live what are the ones that you're frequenting the most so the main ones i like is is Quia. it's on indian land and it's east of temecula and it's a wide open kind of sandy track with, it added more jumps over the years. I kind of wish it didn't have as many jumps, but I, I do most all the jumps. And there's a, I've done quite a few videos there. Uh, Glen Helen's probably the next one. And then the rest, the rest of the tracks I do like, and I'll go to a little bit, but not too often. Because the rest of the tracks are a lot of um, flatter tracks that have been all made into, I don't want to say super cross, because they're not super cross level, but they are, you know, a lot closer to super cross than I want. Just too many jumps. And then it's not, I could probably do a lot of the the track, but they get crowded with a lot of really fast guys. And when I, it's not just pros, the fast uh, kids now, like intermediate kids are really fast and they tend to be the ones that are the most, um, I don't say disrespectful, but uh, they, they'll just run you dirty. They don't just care. Just a little bit dangerous. Uh, yeah. They, and they don't care. I mean, they'll jump, they'll, they'll cut right in front of you, cross jump right in front of you, whip it over your face. And you're just like, what the heck? You know, some kid. Who, who doesn't even know who you are or anything, and uh, he, he's willing to take you out for, for nothing on a practice day. You know, and that's what's taken over in California is practice days. So basically all the tracks from, you know, Paula, Paris, uh, Milestone, uh, Glen Helen, all these tracks are open 
a bunch, and so guys can just practice a lot, and that's what's kind of uh, killed off racing a bit in California and out west. Just the practice days, they're they're hurting the racing. Like, t- what do you mean by that? So it used to be, you, if you wanted to ride a dirt bike, you had to race. You know, okay. Back in the eighties, seventies, eighties, nineties, you would pretty much, if you wanted to go to a track, it was open on you know Saturday and Sunday for you to race. And nowadays, the tracks are open all during the week, and so guys can pay their twenty-five to thirty dollars just to go practice. And so when they're doing that, then a lot of them, if they practice two or three days during the week, they can't afford to race. And so it's kind of killed off a lot of the racing. So there's hmm, not nearly, nearly as much racing going on in California as there was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But there's, is there more overall riding happening then? I don't know if it's necessary. There might be more overriding, overall riding by the guys that are riding, but that group is probably getting smaller. Hmm. of overall people, at least from my, my feel for the industry. Well, and I want to get into that a little bit later. Um, talking about what you're, what you think, where you think the industry is going. But before we get into that, tell me what your, tell me what your favorite bike is right now for track riding, and then I'll ask for the trails too. Well, on track riding, uh, about the 250Fs, I like the Yamaha, the Honda, and the KTM Husky. All those bikes, I like the 250s. Now, I like them modified, especially. Now, that's not a luxury that a lot of people can do, but working for Cylinder Works, and I can do a project to get one built. And if you can build a 250 and make it a, um, you know, close to 50 horsepower 250, uh, make it a 270, uh, someone like Jamie at Twisted or Race Tech, I've had these guys build me some pretty rad bikes and we'll get them tested. And then after that, I get to ride it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so those are my favorite bikes to ride are 250, four strokes. A lot of guys beat me up because they don't ride two strokes anymore. And as far as two strokes on the track, um, I used to be, was, the funny thing was I was a diehard two-stroke guy. When this four-stroke movement was coming on in the, in the early 2000s, like, you know, 02, 03, 04, in there, I was swearing I was going to buy the last CR250 um, and keep it in a crate, you know, for five or 10 years. I was going to just stockpile a couple CR250s, you know, and, uh, but I never did. And I caved in and started riding an 04 CRF250. And once we started modifying those things, it made on the track it's way easier to ride than than a two stroke. They're just smoother. They're you can be lazier. They're easier to ride. Now there's a downside to that is that you know you don't have to be as good to ride one as you would a two fifty two stroke. Okay. And so you lose some of that skill set, but overall it's more fun. And um, I still I, I had Spencer ride a one twenty five and a one fifty on the track for a long time. I kind of made him do it. That we had a deal. He he couldn't get a ride a big bike until he could pass me on the one fifty, and it took him till he but was the, like fifteen. Oh, because well, the one fifty is still a full size bike, though. Yeah, it's but, just the one fifty two stroke. Yeah, but I wouldn't let him get a, a, onto a four stroke a two fifty F, and he okay. he really wanted to get on two fifty F. You know, every most kids do because they're faster and they're easy to ride. And he'd put one around, but I wouldn't let him ride him at the track until he could pass me on the the two stroke. And so that's funny. Once he could do that, then then I let him start riding the 250F. And, and then from, once he did that, then he just left me. So oh, yeah. yeah, it used to be, it would take, uh, you know, it took him a long time to get to where he could pass me. And then once he got on the 250F, then it was, it would take, like a typical track, it would take him about, you know, 15 to 17 minutes to lap me. And so that we would try to go, you know, two or three lappings in our moto, try to do a 45 minute moto okay. together. And so that's really fun, you know, see how many times he could lap me. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's so cool. So then switching over to trail riding, um, off-road riding, trail riding, what's your what's your go-to bike if you're going to do that? Well, it's it just without saying it's a KTM 300 XC carbureted model. 
carbureted model. You're <laughs> still you're still not on the, uh, you're not on the EFI bandwagon yet, right? Not not yet. I I think that the, obviously this TPI is here. A lot of people think it's here because it's better. And it's not. It's not. So the reason it's here is because it's regulations in Europe that that have forced KTM and Husky to switch to this this model. I I, I think that technology is good, and I think it's going to be fine. It's just going. I think it's going to take a little bit to get better. There's some real downsides to the new TPI bikes that I don't like. Like like what? Like well, it's not doesn't have a Kickstarter. I, oh I, yeah, that part kind of stinks. And and it's they're really quirky um, in in how they when you have the carbureted version. With with a good carburetor, either Electron or a Kian on, um, not the stock Makuni, unfortunately. That's a whole other story. But if you have one of those other carbs on, it, it gives this real predictable power that you're used to riding. Um, and I, I really like the type of power that it gives. And when you get on the TPI bike, it can it can be a little bit weird at times. Like I think the relationship with the power valve, how how that works, it can be a little quirky. And I don't know how to better describe it, but it can feel real funny. Do you still feel that way on the 2020s? Yeah, I still do. And now, now I know it's getting a little better, but it still felt that way. And I also worry about, because I see a lot of behind the scenes things, and I just worry about the durability as well because of how they're mapped, or we'll call it jetting, right? How they have to be kind of jetted, um, and they're a little bit lean. They're uh, lean. Yeah. yeah. They're, so, they're lean, especially off idle. Right. And so, and that's where, I mean... I, I went trail riding the other day, and I'd say, I don't know, 60% of our trail riding was off of idle. You know, we were barely moving. You know, yeah. you're in first, second gear the whole time. So you're, that's where you're at most of the time on a lot of the trail rides we do are really slow trail rides. Yeah. No, I can relate to that. I, I, I feel like, though, the 2020s that I have, I've got, well, I've been off the bike for a month because of my my uh, finger here, but I've got about 20, 25 hours on both of my 2020s, and I, I think that they're better. I think... As far as how they run, I think that they are running better or as good or better of any bike as any bike that I've ever been on. And I'm not having the predictability problems that you're having. I think I think my 2020s are better than my 2019s. And I would also say I, I think the 250 runs better than the 300 uh, in, on the TPI. On the TPI. I, there's, just, there's just something about it. The ones that I've been around, and I own three of them right now, three or four of the TPI bikes, um, I think the 250 generally suits itself a little better to the TPI than the 300 does. Yeah, it might be mapped a little better. I I just think the way that the power is, it just seems it just seems a little bit more natural, a little bit more smooth. So, so I, I love those two strokes. And I on the trail, I just can't, uh, I can't, I'll get on a 350 for a while, a uh, 350 XCF. That's the next bike that I love if you had to pick like another bike. And I do love that bike. What's funny is I think it's amazing. I'm, I'm loving it, loving it. And then if I hop on a 300, within two minutes, I'm like, this is way better. Um, so if you get on a 300 and I like the XC type power, uh, and transmission better than the XCWs, uh, as a rule, uh, the XCs, I, you don't, I do go up to a 51, which is what the 2020s come with. Right. I go up to a 51. That's what I've done. And, uh, for the last, since 17, when they came out and it, it, you can carry second gear, a lot of places. And that's what I like to, to be able to do and still be able to slam down to first if you're really in trouble. I totally agree with what you're saying as far as the XE versus the XCW, but uh, why don't you just elaborate? Why do you, because I've taken from some crowds on YouTube, I've taken a ton of heat for saying that I like the, the XC platform better, and a lot of it is because of the gearing. Why, why do you think the gearing is better on the XE versus the XCW? I, I don't like that gap. And there's nothing you can do about the gap in the gearing. Bang. Yeah, so there's nothing you can do. So you can... <laughs> No, this, this is what I wanted. 
There's nothing you can do about the gap between yeah, first and second. You can't do anything about it. And so when, when I'm on the bike, um, you, if you're in first, it's just too low to do anything. Uh, and it, w- it would be fine if at a dead stop at the bottom of the hill, okay, it's useful there. But at normal riding, and then you shift up to second, and you're like, it felt like you just shifted to third. Like I swear, you know, I feel like that. that's what it always does to me is I feel like, oh, crud, now I'm too high. And there's no way to fix it with changing the rear sprocket because the gap is too big. So whatever you do with the rear sprocket, you're just going to make first even worse. If I put a bigger rear sprocket on, uh, I'm going to make first even worse than it is now. And and vice versa with going with a smaller rear sprocket. So that, that's been my biggest problem with XCWs. And um, unfortunately... Um, there's a lot of, cause we end up buying an XCW headlight to put on it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you, we, you know, we tend to make them look more like an XCW. So that, that's not the, um, it's not about the looks or anything. It's, it's just that I think that that part's a little better. The gearing. Yeah. And, and I do think I, I'm not a huge thing. A lot of people beat up the PDS, you know, the, um, shock. And I have that on my EXCs. I have two EXCs right now that are really awesome for off-road riding. I don't know that the PDS is a big deal. Um, but it does seem like, for whatever reason, our XCs do feel like they handle a little bit better in some ways. I think that's just the geometry. I, th- I think people, I think people try to say it's because of the linkage or not, but I think it's the geometry of the front end. I think that the XC has a more stable feel. When I go from an XC, if I'm riding my XCW and I'll put you know five hours on it, and then I switch over to the XC, the XC feels like a longer bike. It feels more stable. Yes, and so. If you're in really, really tight woods, you like a nimble bike, but a lot of the stuff we're riding out here in the West isn't real tight. And so it, it, it just lends itself more to that, that bike that's more stable, feels a little bit longer. So in addition to the gearing, I, I, I agree with you. This is a podcast, so no one can see you move your hands. I know, but it still helps me to talk. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing the length. Jay's sitting over here with his hands, you know, folded like he's, he's going to Sunday school, so... I'm just kidding. So that that's an inter- interesting question because you said your second favorite bike would be a 350XCF um, for the trails. So here's my question for you. Recluse auto clutch or no? <laughs> no. And, and you mentioned it the other day in a video about uh, you had a rear, rear brake, I think you were talking about, and how I don't like things. One of the reasons I've been against it is because I have a ton of different bikes that I ride. And so even if I got used to it and then I started to like it, then the problem would be I'd have to put it on all my bikes if yeah. I liked it. So, and then the times I have ridden it, for the most part, I call it cheating a little bit. And I, if you ride a if you're riding a 300 XC or TPI, any type of 250 um, or two stroke on the trail, I don't know why you would need one myself. Now, if you're on a 500 and you and you're stalling it and you're on a big four stroke and you're stalling a lot and you really need it, um, it feels to me like you're. Uh, um, you're cheating. And I don't like, there were some characteristics I didn't like is like when you're stuck on a hill. Um, I, I like, you know, being able to kill the bike and I know I'm in gear, it's not going to roll backwards, you know? Yeah. And it, I don't want to have to have an extra brake and all that. And people go, oh, you can add an extra brake and this and that. So for me, and I don't, and I don't want to beat up any company, obviously. It's a good company. There's a, they're great guys. I have dealt with them on some projects and stuff and they're really good guys. They, and they, they're, they have a good following and I don't fault people that do it and they only have one bike, but I do ride a lot of different bikes. And for me, I like the feel of just the regular clutch. I do like that feel and, um, I guess the challenge of it. But as I say, I, I like that and it's, you know, cheating. I still run a, I'll either run a trials tire or a Dunlop AT 81 EX, which is like really cheating. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like we're we're in sync on that. Um, not to beat a, a, a dead horse, but I, I get so many questions 
Uh, I even had this question on my Facebook page the other day where they're saying, Kyle, what do you think of the Recluse? And I say, hey, let me start out by saying it's a fantastic company and it's a really good product. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, they're, you know, the Recluse is trying to solve a problem that I either, that I don't want to solve. And, yeah. and and then and then it makes it harder for me to do some of the things like pivot turns and log crossings and and rock hopping and stuff because the clutch is trying to trying to decide whether or not to engage at the same time I'm trying to do a precise input into the clutch clutch throttle all that stuff because the the clutch is engaging based off your RPMs and you bring you know? up a good point I think that some guys that get it, it it's like they're almost they're, they're cheating themselves a little bit because they're never going to be able to get better at maybe some things that they could get better at if they kept their regular clutch on that that's what i feel like if you have your regular clutch you're going to get better i i was riding with a group of guys and one of the guys he had one on his and i hopped on his bike and i was like man you don't really need this he was on a tx 300 and and i just think it's going to hold him back from ever getting any further uh progressing wise uh, on his skill set because he's always going to be able to just to um just put up stuff so to speak, but he's never going to like clean something gnarly and wheelie up this like right. section that he would if he was practicing a bunch on a, um, with a regular clutch. Yeah. He might that be that guy that gets down stuck in a wash and he's trying to pull out of it in third gear. I I've been with these, I've been, I've been <laughs> with guys that, you know, it, it can tend to happen. Now, not everyone does that. And there'll be a million people that would want to counter and say, I ride my recluse installed bike, just like you ride yours. And I use my clutch just like you do yours and all these other things. But I don't know. It's just an interesting topic. It, to me, the recluse or not is almost turning into four stroke versus two stroke. There's a lot of heated opinions on both sides of it. So I just like to ask. So Jay, tell me in you, you, your, your opinion on this is going to be a lot more weighted and more valuable than what my opinion is. Uh, so I want to get your, your take on this is the arrow in the dirt bike industry as a whole is the arrow pointing up or down for our industry as a whole. As a whole, I would have to say down, unfortunately, because um, we, while we have more visibility, like with YouTube, like with your channel and all these other channels, and I think there's a lot of positive things we see with Supercross big and Outdoor Nationals are big and a lot of the off-road racing is big. Um, we see a lot of it because the media is so big, right? Social media is big. Everything, we see a lot of it in our face. But the reality is they're selling way less bikes than they sold 10 years ago, you know, back before the boom when everybody was buying lots of bikes. So the overall market is definitely smaller, and I think it is shrinking. It's an old man's market. Um, if your dad or uncle isn't getting you into racing or riding, uh, for the most part, there's not a lot of um, you know young, I don't what do you call the people younger than millennials? You know, that group. Gen Z or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get a whole lot of them coming into this deal because they're stuck on Fortnite or whatever, and they're not going to come get into dirt bikes. It just not as appealing to them. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think uh, riding land um, is, is a big one. There's not as much. When, when riding was big in the 70s and 80s, a lot of kids rode from their house. They could get away with sneaking out from their house and going down to the riverbed or to whatever, you know, over by the dump, I always say. There's always usually a place you can ride if there's a dump in your town or train tracks. Those, nice. are, those are the places to look for if you go, oh, there's nowhere to ride in my town. I go, go look by the dump or the train tracks, and, <laughs> and you can usually find a place to ride. So um, you could do that back then, and that's all gone away in a lot of areas. In, um, and that brings up a whole other segment. I think that's why a lot of guys are getting into dual sporting uh, later, because they can leave from their house without the, the added deal, and they can go... Because they're plated. Because they're plated, and they go putts around, find a little bit of dirt, Go play in some dirt that they, you know, whether it's legal or kind of legal, they can go find some dirt somewhere, play, 
and then ride back to the house kind of thing. Or, of course, do trips with guys and do something similar. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons that I think dual sporting is going to catch on. But as far as the overall industry, unfortunately, I think it is uh, headed down. Now, it's not all bleak. This, there's still a lot of people who want to ride, and I think it's going to um, you know, be around a long time. It's not like it's going away. I always say if you've if you've ridden dirt bikes, you're, you're for the most part most people are hooked. You know, yeah. I always joke around that uh, it's you know all these other activities. And when I see people doing some activities like uh, you know golfing or other things, I go these are activities that people created. You know that never rode dirt bikes, <laughs> <laughs> and so there has to be activities for people that don't or can't ride dirt bikes. You know. Yeah. So that so the, those are all the golfers and all the. All the other. It's funny you mention that because I've golfed in my life. I've done a lot of different hobbies, but nothing has spoken to me. Even airplanes and long range shooting and guitar and and things. Nothing has taken over my life like dirt bikes have. And I, and, I, and maybe it's just in in our blood, you know. But I I think you're right. Once you get into this thing, if you get if you get that taste, you can never kind of get out of your mouth. It's it's pretty addicting, and and there's a reason for it is because it's pretty dang awesome. That's I think that's that's the reason. And so if you have to explain it to somebody, they don't get it. And one of the one of the neat guys that, you know, Kurt, one of these guys I worked for for years, he, he had this theory and what was always kept him successful. One of the cool things about this industry is like FMF and a lot of these successful companies are run by entrepreneurs who just started. They have no college experience, a lot of them. Um, you know, FMF, for instance, Donnie was a racer and, and just started making pipes and to help people. Um, but they totally understand guys that want parts, what they want, and they totally get that. And... They, he always, uh, Kurt would have this 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 thought or theory about if you don't understand what it's like on Friday night or Saturday night to be missing your part or the wrong part showed up for your bike and you can't ride that weekend and you're willing to like kill to get that part, you you don't get it. They don't understand. And when you when you're and when you do that, and so a lot of the big companies and within our aftermarket, a lot of the companies have been bought by big companies, and so. That's one, and a lot of those big companies, unfortunately, don't get that part, and that's what happened to White Brothers going out of business, and some of these companies that get people in place who don't understand um, that this is a lot different. When you're selling dirt bike parts, it's a lot different than just selling gidgets and widgets for a lawnmower or whatever type of other. It's a passion. There's a there's a passion behind it, right? Right. Where like some of these uh, NBA type guys might not understand that. Hey, if a guy gets the wrong part on Friday night. Like he's gonna be really pissed and never want to buy anything from you. They don't understand that because they don't think it's a big deal that he gets it on Monday. They don't understand. Yeah, because they they don't understand the the timing thing. You've only got you've got a finite <laughs> amount of time, or the race is on Saturday slash Sunday, whatever. And it doesn't matter if it comes Monday because that blew your whole weekend. Right, you're just done. You, yeah. And so that, that's one thing that's happened in this industry a little bit. So that that is one downside that I see happening. But there's some positives. Some of these companies are realizing, hey, we need enthusiasts at the core of these uh, companies. You know. And so a lot of them are realizing they need enthusiasts who totally get, you know, and that's one of the things that happens like at, at Dunlop and they, they have guys who ride. I mean, Brock Glover's one of the big guys there and he's got a six-time champion and um, Brian Fleck, he's a guy that still rides today in a bunch of, you know, dirt track and moto. And so we have all these kind of guys. When you have enthusiasts at, you know, big key decisions and at these companies, it's kind of cool because they see it how an end user would see it and, you know, how, how the every, every guy would see it. I love it. Transitioning to uh, something that else I see in the industry. I want to get your take on this electric dirt bikes. Is this a thing 
Or is it a or is it is it is it a fad that's just going to go uh, away? I, I sure hope it's not a thing, and I sure hope it's a fad that goes away. Now people will go, "You're wrong or crazy," but I think part of the reason that dirt bikes are cool is the smell of you know gas, two the smell of two stroke, and the, and the and the four stroke, and and the the thunder of a four gas. stroke race gas smell. I mean, it's there's so much stuff, and and doing the type of riding we're doing, um, in like you're in a remote area of Idaho just a few weeks back, right? There's absolutely no way ever you're going to take an electric bike out there. You know, we, we're, we're complaining about not having a Kickstarter backup on a bike that we could bump start if we had to down a big hill. Okay, now we're talking about taking an electric bike. If it had a failure or you run out of battery and you're lost, you know, you're lost in these trails for a few hours trying to find your way back. So in the trail segment, I, I could just not see this. I mean, now maybe some, you know hour, two hour loop or whatever around your house, but not a real adventure. You're going to be able to take a electric bike. You know, it just seems very impractical to me. Unless what if, what if they got the battery technology to where it was, it could do four engine hours, you know? Yeah. And you know, I guess that's possible. Cause a lot of our trail rides will be, you know, maybe six hour, seven hour trail ride, but it's really four engine hours on some of these longer rides. So if the battery was four hours, then would it work? It's, it's, I guess it's possible, but I, I would be so sketched out the whole time. Like, uh, you know, I gotta, you know, I was talking about that ride I'm going to do in a few weeks and, uh, it's going to be a three to five hour ride. And we've had things go wrong on those rides where they end up being, you know, six or seven hour rides, you know, your, your best laid plans or whatever. So that's, that's something that's going to be, uh, that we're going to look to. I, I felt like even when Alta was doing supposedly well, I, I told Spencer, I'd be like, man, this is all smoke and mirrors. And because I think it was a bunch of investors. And even when they were selling these things for 15 grand and they go, and then they got them down to like 12, I go, man, it just seems like it's not real. It's not real because I think the reality is, is they don't have that cost down yet enough to be able to even compete. First of all, I don't think they can even sell a bike for real for what a, you know, KTM 450 costs. You know, they can't sell a bike for 10 grand. Um, I don't think they can really get there with the you know apples to apples deal yet. And if they do, it's going to be subsidized by somebody. So it's not real yet, in my opinion. It's not like a real viable deal. And I think that's the reason those companies went out and and they were based in you know up there in Silicon Valley. And I think that's part of the you know problem. And so it, now when KTM comes to market, like right now they have a new fifty. They unveiled this weekend at Straight Rhythm and. With that coming out, the electric fifty. Now, now there's some potential for that. Now it's going to kind of suck, I think, to have um, a generator. You have to have it. You know, KTM guys are joking; they need to make a generator now, so they're going to have to make a gas generator. And with a, with all those ramifications, right? The uh, you know long term for the environment, making generators so, to charge their electric bike. And so, is the whole concept even in the automotive industry, which electric cars more practical in automotive? Um, you know. I don't want to sit at a uh, Starbucks while my, you know, Tesla's charging and talk to those types of guys like, you know, re- reading their, uh, you know, Tree Hugger magazine. Yeah, I think the batteries have to be hot swappable where a battery is affordable and it's got to be swappable so that you can come into a pit or to the truck or whatever and swap your battery in two minutes or less yes. and then go back out and then have a charging station, which is charging up your other battery. And it can't take six, eight hours to charge. If it does, it's, it won't work. It won't work for camping. I mean, I think about it. When I go camping, I will take four to six bikes with me because I've got, you know, four kids and sometimes I'll take an extra bike for me just in case something happens or I'm testing. But the whole point is I can't do electric. I can't do electric when I'm camping. That's true. You know, so they've got to be hot swappable, the batteries. Technology has to move 
a, a long ways. It works for a track. It could work for a track bike because if you were, you know, you're right by the truck. Um, but if you had a swappable battery, the other thing is clutch. The ones that I'm seeing don't have clutches no. because they're saying, well, we don't need a clutch because uh, the bike makes 100% torque at zero at one RPM. And I'm going, the clutch is not about how much power it can make. It's about modulating the power to the rear wheel. Right. And my clutch is one of my main inputs. I have front brake, rear brake, throttle, and clutch. Those, those are my inputs here. And if you take one of those inputs away, you have just, you have just hampered me. Now, how am I, how am I going to do a double blip, which I'm still working on? <laughs> how am I going to do a double blip? How am I going to get over a rock? How am I going to do all these things? I now have, you've taken away one of the ways that I modulate power. And I think if you're going to make an electric dirt bike, it has to incorporate a standard clutch. Yep. What yeah. do you think? Oh, I agree. I mean, it needs, because when I, the ones I've rode, um, obviously surprisingly the first thing is they do have way more power than you think as soon as you hop on one even the mountain bikes for instance but the the altos and the the actual moto bikes that i rode they, they were kind of scary when you took off it was like yeah they got plenty of power and torque there but you want something to modulate that and that's what i think what however they come up with something is going to need to do that um but again i kind of hope it i hope it goes away and i and i don't know that there's enough true funding there on this 50 cc thing you know ktm's still going to keep their or two-stroke um, going. So until there's a demand that says, hey, we have to, we can't make, you know, gasoline engines, um, like that's legitimate. Um, I don't see it ever taking over myself. Well, the frustrating thing to me is if if we get to the point where we can't have a gas motorcycle, it will be because we've gotten so, and I'm going to use air quotes, we've gotten so green that we we don't think that these small, we think these small engines are too bad for the environment. My problem with this is for every dirt bike, there's 100 lawnmowers <laughs> or maybe 500 lawnmowers for yeah. every dirt bike. And, and there's, all of these, there's all of these small engines. Dirt bikes are such a small drop in the bucket for the total carbon that we are burning on this planet. And I just, it frustrates me that, that dirt bikes, can, you know, are, they seem like they're just this easy target because they're loud. And even on the two strokes, you can see the smoke coming out of them, but it's like, there are, there's a million cars here. And I know cars have gotten better on the emissions, but there are like, literally there's a, there's a hundred thousand cars for every freaking dirt bike out there. No, no, I don't know where the pressure is coming. I think there's just maybe people wanting to plan ahead, but I don't think that there's, I mean, if we look at the entire they call it the footprint, right? Of carbon footprint carbon or whatever. What it takes to build batteries, the, the plant that it takes <laughs> to build batteries. And then when you're going to have the old batteries, when they spike five or six years old or whatever, and, and if you look at the entire impact in the environment... The batteries are worse. Right. And everything I've read about cars and all those batteries and those, you know, ten, you get a 10-year-old Tesla or whatever, whatever these cars are that are electric, how they're going to have to dispose of these batteries in these cars that are hybrid or full electric... Um, it's it's more of an impact in the environment, so it's just it's just all different type right. of impact, right? And even even on cars, not to go on a tangent, but electric car that's a coal powered car in the United States. It's <laughs> we we sit there and think electric is clean. Guess what? Most of your power in the United States of America, <laughs> electricity is generated by burning coal, which is another fossil fuel. So all we do is we go from burning burning one fossil fuel to burning the other fossil fuel. So is it really better? And I say no. And, and, I, and I hope that's the case. So I hope it stays that way. 
So here's another question for you. So in the last several years, it seems like KTM Husqvarna has kind of taken over in the off-road segment segment. Maybe not maybe not as much in the motocross segment because there's still the Japanese bikes uh, are still making really, really good competitive mo- motocross and supercross bikes. But in the off-road segment, KTM has kind of taken over. When I start when I first started riding bikes, I my first KTM was in 2012, and I wouldn't I hardly saw any other orange bikes out there. Now fast forward 2016, 2017, 2019. I almost only see orange bikes when I'm out in on the trail. So my question to you is, can the Japanese bike makers keep up with KTM and Husky in the off-road segment? And, and if they can, what would they have to do to, to actually keep up? Well, my immediate answer is no, unfortunately. Um, I think that they, the biggest advantage or, dis, or whatever you'd call it for KTM is that they don't seem to, they have like a, we, we joke around that they've, they've, you know, got the bean counters, the accountants, they've, they've uh, locked them up into a different room they, where the Japanese manufacturers have to meet a much higher standard, high, or let me say standard, a uh, much higher sales level, I think, of bikes. And so... Uh, or they, even profit margin or, yeah. or, or I think, ROI, return on investment. I think all that goes into factor where KTM has said, hey, we're okay having... X number of models, and they have way more models. That's another problem, you know, for the Japanese manufacturers to compete with is that they have the fact that we've been talking about XC and XCWs, you know, just recently has, you know, uh, Honda and Yamaha come out with um, uh, FX and WRs um, on their four stroke line. Right? They've had the WRs for a long time, but it was kind of just forgotten. Yes. Right. And so now that they're trying to pay more attention to that and come out with them. They also, the one of the other problems stock-wise is they tend to be way more um, uh, conservative on power. They, you know, they 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 seem to be detuned a lot more than... The Japanese bikes? Yes. So they so that's a big problem is that they, they come detuned stock where the KTM and Huskies models are ready to race. I mean, they typically are. You know, they really are. And like you mentioned seeing all the bikes. I, I get resumes and different... I see different things from guys racing all over the country. If you look at a start line at a, any off-road race, it's like, you know, 80, 90% orange, KTM, orange yeah. and white bikes, you know, out there. It's, it's, it's crazy what they've done. And I think, I think the biggest thing for the Japanese is that they are way slower to be able to make changes. And so we've seen Honda just come out with a new 450 L and uh, X. And it was kind of a big news. They made a big to-do about it. And it's a really good bike, but it's also very detuned. Um, and it's it's heavy, uh, came with a huge uh, exhaust, and it's overbuilt compared to what the uh, EXCs on the KTM side are. So that's what's it's nice that uh, KTM's able to still and they and they've had to detune their EXCs the last few years because if you get like a thirteen to sixteen EXC fifteen EXC, um, they're they're actually faster than the newer bikes and a little better in some ways. So um, they've had to detune, but they're still. You know, stock wise, is that the emission stuff? Detuning yeah. for green sticker in California, right? So they and and for their street legal bikes on the EXC, so that they come with, they have a restrictor inside the air boot now, uh, in between the throttle body and the air filter. There's actually a little reed cage in there just to stuff things down in there, and then the mapping. But you know, we we get beyond that since we're only riding a closed course and uh, not on public lands. We we just run a vortex ECU and uh, and do everything we want to do to make them run. They run as good as a motocross bike. It's yeah. pretty easy. And the, and, and the Hondas now are like this 450L and 450X. There's guys like Jamie at Twisted who have actually 
uh, come up with mapping and be able to map those things to where they run really good. And that's what people are going to start running in Baja. Because for Baja, for the last, since 05, they've been running CR450Xs. That's been the bike of choice for most guys in Baja. Um, just because it's really durable. And so everybody kind of runs it that goes there. And uh, and it's been the, the mainstay for Baja. And now, and now they've they've finally updated that. But I mean, it seems I agree with what you're saying. The, the uh, update cycles on the on the KTM's happen every year, and sometimes even twice a year. Whereas <laughs> the update cycles on on the Japanese bikes, it's like every three to four years. Well, and they're getting they're, the only reason they're getting a little quicker is because a KTM and Husky has really raised the level. And we, you mentioned the motocross thing for the you know like if you look at like you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen in there. Um, KTM had really distanced itself from the Japanese, even on the uh, motocross side. But just recently, Yamaha, Honda, and, and even Kawasaki with their new KX450 have all made a stronger effort, and they're trying to do things quicker. But for them, quicker is still slower than KTM, but they're getting there quicker. And I think KTM has pushed these other manufacturers to do things a little quicker. And the fact that the Kawasaki KX450 comes with a hydraulic clutch now, um, they never would have done that if KTM wasn't doing so well. Yeah. And, and, you know, little things like that. Like, to me, after you ride with a hydraulic clutch and you get on a bike without one, you're like, why, why does anybody not, why does not everyone do this? Right, right. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I noticed you, you left out one of those um, big, the typical big four manufacturers out. You haven't even mentioned the one that starts with an S. Um, what's going on there? It, what's your feeling with the one that they're, starts they're with an great, S? They're a great company, and I've rode Suzuki. Yeah, I've rode Suzuki's a lot over the years because I really like the bikes. It's just unfortunately the last few years they just have been left behind a little bit, and I don't know the total reasons if it's what it is in the guys, you know, in their you know development side, but they're the only bikes left with a Kickstarter, um, and they're also a bit heavy. The bikes are heavy and just behind everything else. And in the, in the 450 side, they're the only one with a kick, with a Kickstarter still. And no electric Does it start. have electrics? It doesn't have electric start. No. So I'm all for Kickstarters, but uh, but just I, I'm backups. all for electric start, yeah. And on motocross bikes, I'm not opposed to, on a motocross bike, I'm not opposed to a bike not having a Kickstarter. Sure. On a trail bike like an XC, now that's a different story. It should have a Kickstarter backup. That, that's a total different deal because on a motocross bike, you're at the track. No big deal um, to swap a battery or to jump it, bump it, whatever you got to do. Push it. Yeah. It's not a big deal. But you're stuck in a, in a trail situation. Uh, it it sh- should come with that. So uh, for the Suzuki thing's a bit uh, odd, and, and that both their bikes have just recently been updated. And so I don't know that we're going to see even new updates for them for a couple more years, unfortunately. So the bikes they have are very good. They're just a, a few years behind maybe everything else right now yeah i was listening to chris Kiefer's podcast and he was uh, uh so i don't know a couple months ago he was talking about the suzuki and he's like look it's still a good bike yeah. and, and you can look at it as this is a bargain bike because it's a couple thousand dollars cheaper and but i worry because i feel like if i mean if one of these guys one of if one of these big manufacturers is going to give up i feel like right now it might be suzuki and and i i look at yamaha honda kawasaki uh they are um these are huge corporations, billions of dollars big, but the dirt bike segment is this little sliver yeah. offshoot, and and I'm, I'm I've got to say they're not getting the budgets that they want to make the product that they want to make. They're they're just getting you know like the little here's here's little pennies like the the big corporation drops down yeah. a few pennies down to the dirt bike department and says hey go turn a profit on this, but they're not really investing in it. Whereas, kind of what you were 
what I interpreted what you were saying is KTM is doing it the other way. It's it's only a dirt bike company, and they're they're throwing more caution to the wind, and they're being a lot more liberal with their R and D dollars, and it ends up in a better product. And and they're really committed, and now they're committed to street bikes as well. They're going after other uh, areas, and that's what's really cool is that they you know have thrown that out the window, and uh, these Japanese manufacturers. There's a lot of pride that goes into, from what I can tell, that motivates all their racing efforts and, and their efforts. And, and I don't think your Suzuki's going to go away from dirt bikes anytime soon, even though they're going to be behind a little bit. I think they're going to come back, and I think we'll see something good in the next few years from them. So I don't think that's the equation. They have a lot. Of, what's funny is that I think, because it doesn't make sense, any of this racing stuff, you know, to pay Villapoto or Tomac the kind of money they do. And I've heard rumors with bonuses and winning these championships over $10 million you know, to $12 million a year for some of these top guys that are winning Supercross championships, right? So if that's the case, and then plus all the other money they make, but I'm talking about just the money from the manufacturer, right? And then what it costs to put a semi-truck and a whole team on the road for the year. Millions. Millions, millions, right? So there's absolutely no way they sell enough KX450s or 250s combined to justify what they're doing. So it has to be a company-wide, you know, promotion, whatever they want to call it, that they take pride in and winning supercross races and having guys out there. So, you know, it makes sense. And they sell enough heavy equipment, whatever it is, that offsets what they lose in dirt bikes because it obviously doesn't make sense, you know? So you think it's you think it's a losing... You think that these... You think a lot of these race teams... I mean, to restate that, and this is just, you know, us speculating, but you being plugged into the industry, you're saying you think that that might be... Those those uh, race teams are not in the black. I mean, they're they're operating in the red... And they're being subsidized by the big, the big you know company backing them, without a doubt. Yeah, they they don't sell enough KX models to pay for the race team. No way. There's no way it would justify because you'd have to sell. They would need to be selling you know twenty thirty thousand dollar you know twenty twenty or thirty thousand dirt bikes a year, and they don't. You know that number is like like you know a quarter of that. Because in my mind, I've always thought, well, they're they're doing this. They're they're trying to pump the money into the racing because then they'll make it all back in the dirt bike sales. But what you're saying is you don't think there's enough dirt bike sales to even pay for that. Not even close. Yeah. Wow. No, there's no way. And and so it has to. It, it, it with that Japanese culture, they really enjoy. And and even the you know even KTM enjoys winning, right? But it, it's a brand thing, and so for them, it just they they think it helps with the rest of their brand, you know. Whether it's Honda selling mowers and, and generators and, and and Civics or whatever, that they think it trickles down and and with these and maybe companies. it does. It, yeah, it probably does. And and so it, it if helps. you've got a big enough company, so then how does KTM fund it? And and some and that's what we it, we've for the last five years been wondering how in the world this this happens. But they've made an effort to, that they still are in the plus somehow after doing this. You know, and I I think they lot, don't have generators or cars or or or. Uh, you know, track hose or anything else to fall back on. I know they, you know, they can't. Yamaha rob. sells pianos and personal watercraft and every, and everything else and guitars. So, so they've got this other thing that can do it. So, how does KTM subsidize it? it? it it's crazy, and that's and that and not only that, but they seem to be doing the most advancements. Now, they might not always have the best winning bike or whatever, but they're doing the most advancements and like have the best, uh, a lot of the best parts on the bikes. And and more and to me, more important than. Then the bike is the rider riding it. I mean, we just saw we just saw Red Bull Straight Rhythms this last weekend, where where, <laughs> where Ken Roxon wins on you know a 2006 Honda CR250, um, and I'm and I'm going and he was up against some of the guys that were on the you know, these brand new 2020 KTM's, and I'm going, but I've never heard of you 
I know who Ken Roxon is. <laughs> right. And so you can put Ken Roxon on my, on my kid's bike and he might, he might still beat you, you know, but I, it's so, it's so interesting to me to see some of these things in the industry. It's fun. So what's uh, just kind of, you know, as kind of, we wrap up here a little bit, what do you think the trick is to staying relevant in the industry in your situation? And, and I'll add some color to that question. I, I kind of feel like guys like you and me, in fact, me, I'm more of an extreme. You're, you're not as much on the perifer- periphery, but I'll just say there's, there's the core, you know, manufacturers that are at the core and then there's the race teams around them. And then there's these, you know, companies that are on the periphery that are making all these aftermarket parts. And then maybe another ring out, there's guys like me or you, and I, I'm not saying I'm on the same level as you. I'm not, but we're kind of on the periphery of the, of the dirt bike world. Right. Yeah. So how, what's the trick that you've seen to staying relevant in the industry when we're out here on the periphery? How have you done it? Well, for me, I, all the companies I work for, I tried to make sure that they feel like they're getting a good value for what they, what, what I do, you know? And so making sure that, that, uh, I do everything I can to have their products show up in any way I can, you know, whether it's banners on a track or on a project build um, or get getting it into any magazine or video any way I can and uh, making sure that, that it comes off in a good light. And, and it's nice that I've worked for good companies that uh, I'm not, I don't have to peddle something that I don't believe in, which is kind of nice. And so yeah. I've had opportunities. People have hit me up for certain things and, um, and I've been able to, you know, decline some of those and go, Hey, I'm just going to stick with these, these companies that I work with. And I work with some great companies and some really good people. So that, that part's kind of cool. Um, and that's, I think as far as, you know, as with anything you do, I think you want to stay where they appreciate you. I mean, that's as with anything in life, if, if they see a value in what you're doing, you're going to continue doing it. And that's what I've been able to try to do. Um, and so we work a lot of, you know, some, some days I'll work, you know, 14 hours and, and the next day I could go riding and uh, just work a few office days and uh, you know and, and it's not not too bad but I you take the good with the bad and um, uh, you know I, I do a lot more office work than maybe I'd like uh, but that's what you have to do to communicate nowadays you know I got to keep everybody updated on reports and emails and good communication I think is key um, one of the questions I get a lot from guys is you know they wish they could do you know find an industry job like what I have and for the most part, I'm the only one that does what I do. Um, and that's just something I've been able to build into. And even when I got on with Wiseco, you know, 27 years ago or so it was, um, that position didn't exist. I, I, I helped create a position. I convinced them they needed somebody to do something. Interesting. And, and for the most part, most of the jobs I've, that I still you know, have right now and, and so forth are jobs that, I, that didn't exist. I pitched them on something that they didn't have. And so I love that. Well, what's nice about that is there's no competition for the you're not there's no interview process with a bunch of other guys. You you sell yourself and can can pitch on something. So I joke around a lot. I tell guys, hey, just work hard, go to school, whatever, and get a job outside the industry where you can afford dirt bikes. That because one of the big problems I see in the, within the industry is um, as a whole, the industry doesn't pay extremely well within the industry. And there's guys that have some good jobs and. Um, All the money is right at the top. To right. Those top riders, the Tomax and the Rocks. And yeah. The, and, and then maybe some of the team managers and then some of the uh, key salespeople at some of these companies, um, maybe some of the higher ups uh, in, the, in, the, in their marketing and so forth. But the guys actually on the ground, um, with they, unfortunately, a lot of them don't make a good living. So And some of, the, some of the mechanics and different things. So what I see a lot of those guys do, first of all, they get in here and they're, they're working 60, 70 hours a week, um, traveling some. 
80 hours and then they stop riding dirt bikes and i go you don't ride anymore they're like yeah i'm just i'm sick of dirt bikes like i get they're sick of dirt bikes and i'm like how could this happen like the whole reason you got working in this industry was because you love dirt bikes and now you're working so much and you despise it that you don't like dirt bikes and so it's really hard for me to fathom and you can't let to me like if you're gonna work in the industry you shouldn't let that happen if it gets to that point then why work in here go work in something you could actually make more money at and yeah <laughs> so it happens a lot and um and so i see guys they'll plug away for five or ten years you know in their you know 20s and early 30s and then they go they, they end up leaving the industry because they can find something better so it, it's hard to make a little niche for yourself and if you can and and uh and you're really blessed like I've been, and that's been uh, been pretty nice. So uh, that's what I tell guys is, you know, if, if you can find a good niche and you can make a living at it, that's great. But if not, it's not the end of the world. I know some really, you know, most of the people I ride with don't work in the industry. They they have real jobs, I say. And yeah. And uh, so I have a hard time finding guys to ride on Wednesdays. I have a little better time on Saturdays when I'm only competing with soccer. Um, but on Wednesdays, I tend to ride with guys, other guys without real jobs. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I feel... Similar people will say, well, I want to make money on YouTube or something. <laughs> and first I say, I don't make money on YouTube. <laughs> right. I mean, I'd be, I would have been better off delivering pizzas. And so if, when people are really push it though, and they say, no, no, how do I start a business kind of like what you've done? And the answer is you need a good job first. Right. Because you're not going to make money at this in the beginning. When I loved your post the other day talking about how you had a great job you know, that helped, helped you for a few years, get this, this uh, going and give you this opportunity to do it full time. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to have that backing because, you know, in some cases as, as you're going to build, I love what you said, you build your own, build your own position. If you're really going to do this, you might need to build your own position. And the only way that works is if you've got a good paying job and this, you know, venture that you want to start in dirt bikes or ATVs or whatever it is, that's going to be your side project, your passion project, your, um, what's the word I want to use? Your side hustle. Right. And so you're going to have to have a good job because your side hustle, if your side hustle has to make money in the beginning, I think it's probably doomed to failure. Right. And, and I warn people because a lot of them do start their own, their own uh, business, you know, whether it's making graphics or whatever they're going to do, right? And to get into the industry because they love this industry so much. And a lot of them make the mistake of... Uh, you know, thinking they can make it. Well, most small businesses, we could look at the statistics, but it's very small that, that survive and anything. And then once they make a um, partnership, most of them have to partner with somebody, right? And those partnerships are somewhat doomed for failure as well. They're, 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 I looked up the stats and it's like even, it brought it down like another 40, 30 or 40%. If you have to have a partner. Right. Because right. the people's, uh, you know, objectives don't align. And right. Most ideologies or whatever. Why well, joke around? Most marriages, uh, you know, over half marriages fail, right? And so what makes you, and those two, two people loved each other at one time. Yeah. Okay. When you have a business <laughs> partnership, you, you didn't love each other. You just got in a business because you guys both wanted to make money. You might be friends, but you, yeah. both, you both wanted to make money. So then, and then oh, in a business partnership, there's always somebody that wants, that thinks the other person's you know, making too much or doing not enough work or whatever it is, it's going to always be there. So it's nice when it's just you to blame. That's been like with my deal. Um, I just work for myself and with these companies I work for and it's, it's just me. Um, I don't have to, you know, it's just myself. My wife helps a ton and we're able to just, uh, it's just all, all on me if, if things don't go well. Yeah. And there's, there's some advantages to that. There's some disadvantages. It, it creates additional stresses. I've just been kind of reflecting because I'm, just kind of hit my year mark in doing dirt bike channel full time. And, and it makes me kind of wonder where the year went. 
it was a little bit depressing when I kind of realized that I'm like, wait, what do I have to show for it? But at the same time, I'm going, well, I haven't lost my house yet, you know? So, <laughs> but you, so you have some, you have some freedoms, like you said, but there's also some additional stresses and fears that come along when there's no one else to blame. There's no management department to shoulder blame. There's no HR department. If there's a failure, you, it's yours and yours and you have to own it. Exactly. You know? So, well, it's been super, it's been super enlightening having you on. How do you, how do people, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I mean, I, I mentioned kind of at the beginning of the show, but if they want to follow what you're doing, how's the best way for them to. Oh, sure. So, um, my, my website's not much. I don't sell anything. I don't sell anything on my website. It's just more for showing all the project bikes I build, which is jclarkent.com. And then uh, YouTube, we're, we we try to get one video a week or so up. It, sometimes it's two or three weeks. But are you still going to do that with with Spencer out of town? We, we have a little stockpile. Okay. Good. <laughs> so my son's gone for two years on a mission for our church. So uh, so that's going to slow down. But I do have a couple other buddies helping, and I'm going to do a few other things. But it's obviously it's not my priority, so it's not a, as a huge deal. But I do enjoy doing it, and um, it's interesting. So that my Instagram is dirt.bike.tv, and then uh, I guess that'd be about it. And I, I, I was thinking, I, I since we're we're recorded here and we could commit you, I think you need to come out to California and learn how to ride dirt bikes on a motocross track. I I need to, and the thing that you you said in that text message, you said, hey, it'll be safe tracks and it'll be well groomed and all those things. So I, I think that would probably be a good place for me to start is out there. Yeah, because um, a lot of tracks outside of California um, are really limited. I see that they are all usually in flat areas with a lot of jumps and not as much natural terrain. Um, I take guys like you and I go, it's, consider it trail riding on a bigger, you know, wider scale. Yeah. You know? and, no. and so we're going to get you out on there. And then I'm going to get you a project bike. I need to get you a project bike. I'm going to build you something. I think both of those ideas are awesome. I need to, I need to do more. I haven't actually put in any real laps at a track. Um, and I've got, that's a whole another podcast episode, but I, th I think I'm going to take you up on that maybe this winter and come down there and, and do some fun stuff. That'd be great. If you, if you got a bike that, Cause I, I have bikes, but I think no, I'd no, probably no. be better. I'll, I'll have I'd a bike. Be better on one of your bikes. Yeah, I'll have two or three to choose from. Set up. So yeah. no, that's awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. I think that there's, I, I've learned a ton from this. I think it should be pretty interesting for a lot of our other guests or our listeners. Uh, that is, and one of the things I love about your just your YouTube channel is, it's there's no BS on this. Uh, Jay has, if he's talking about something, if it's an oil or if it's a product or whatever, these are not things he's just willy nilly. He's going out and he's doing the testing. You know, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I always agree one with 100% with what you're saying, but I can respect that you've put in the time and the effort that this is what you believe and, and you're not wrong. You know what I mean? And I, I love that. I love the fact that you'll just, you'll shoot from the hip and say, Hey, here's something that we are noticing. Cause I'm writing a lot. I'm doing these things. And so I applaud that. I, I love the fact that it's no nonsense and there's a lot of value to be to be learned, even just like you've had videos on oils and chemicals and stuff. And I, I think that there's a, there's a ton of cool stuff in there. That's great. So. Well, I appreciate it, man. And I, I obviously enjoy your stuff. So it's been, uh, been fun cool. we can get out riding. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, thanks everybody for, uh, tuning in and we will catch you later.